Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's journey through history, we're going to venture back on over to Berrien County. And this time, we're going to take a look at the village of Coloma. Now, earlier in the week, I did an episode on the village of Watervalee. And the two villages are very close to each other, and they share a common history. And there is a lot of... Uh, fascinating details about the forming of each village independently as well. So we're going to look at some of the pioneer stories and talk about Coloma today. So come along and join me. So the information I'm going to be sharing with you comes from a book that was written in 1880, and it was entitled History of Berrien and Van Buren Counties, Michigan. And this was published out of a firm over in Pennsylvania during that time. And the publishing firm was D.W. Ensign and Company. And they published a lot of individual histories of townships and counties around different states around the country. Uh, they were more of a history publisher, you might say, as one of their duties. From And they offered these books at the time available in different catalogs for sale. They'd arrive at your house in a printed uh, booklet, so you got a little bit of a history lessons there. And people were big into reading back in that time. So this was a popular type of entertainment was to continue to educate yourself on local history. Very much like the sophisticated listening audience I have here on Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. So to begin the story of the Coloma Village, about 1840, a man by the name of John Williams of St. Lawrence County, New York, made his appearance in Watervalley with his family, but he was unable to purchase a farm, and he eventually agreed with Israel Kellogg, who I mentioned in the earlier episode, who was the resident land agent for Smith and Merrick. And the agreement that he made was to work on a tract of land, which is now the site of the Coloma Village. Kellogg had put up a log house for Williams upon the spot that later became occupied by a Dr. Baker and his house, and he built this uh, cabin for him as well as a framed barn. Now, Williams worked this place for about two years with little success. Afterwards, he moved to Bainbridge and he would die over there. A man by the name of Adam Prouty took the place after Williams' departure, but remained only two years and then moved away. And then another man by the name of George Becker of Jefferson County, New York, who had traveled with his wife and six children from Buffalo to St. Joseph by the way of the lakes, happened along about the time that Prouty moved out. This would have been about May of 1844, and he took possession of the cabin. Now, originally, he proposed to remain there only a short time as he had been leaving his New York home, and he ended up exchanging his farm there with Smith and Murdoch for 80 acres on the southern portion of Watervalley, which ultimately became his homestead. Now, Becker moved his family to that farm south of Watervalley, but afterwards, shortly exchanged it for a farm south of where Coloma is today, and he would live there until he died in 1873, and his widow continued to live there after his passing. Now, another man by the name of James Johnson, who was a tailor, and he came from Yates County, New York, he had settled in St. Joseph County, Indiana in 1837. And then in May of 1844, in the company of a man by the name of George Merrifield of the same place in Indiana, they decided to take a trip up to Michigan and visit the place. And so in partnership, they bought from Smith and Merrick, 320 acres of land, which covered a good portion of where Coloma is today. 
and of this land, about 140 acres had been cleared. So Johnson and Merrifield sowed the land to grain and returned to Indiana for their families. And then Merrifield's family refused to move, so he sold his interest in Michigan in the farm to Johnson, who later packed up with his wife and three children and set out for the Waterflea area, and he settled on that large parcel of land. Upon their arrival, they occupied the log house, which had previously been used by Williams, Prouty, and Becker, and then he continued to reside there until Johnson passed away unexpectedly in 1847. But the story gets even more interesting. A man by the name of Abner Crossman of Bainbridge, he took possession of Johnson's farm, and he would marry Johnson's widow. And after living in the place a little while, he moved to a farm just east of Waterville, where he died, and where his widow would eventually survive him. So the widow of Mr. Johnson, she later became the widow of Abner Crossman, continued to live in the area long after the passing of her two husbands. Now, in the episode that I did on Waterville, there was a man by the name of Stephen Gilson, and he was involved early with the history of Shingle Diggings, which was the name of essentially both the area that we know today as Coloma and Waterville. And the historical writing made it sound like it was more in Waterville than Coloma. But if you look up some of the history of Coloma, they say that that was Shingle Digging. So it was somewhere between the two villages at the original Shingle Diggings, which was essentially a cluster of men that had established individual enterprises to manufacture shingles and sell them in St. Joseph, Michigan because there was a lot of forests around there. So they spent all this time chopping up wood and turning it into wooden shingles and shipping it to St. Joseph. So Stephen Gilsom, who I mentioned before, he turned his first home over in Waterville, and in 1838 he became a settler over in Bainbridge, and then afterwards he moved to Chicago, and then in 1844 he returned to Waterville, or at least the township of Waterville, and he purchased a 60-acre farm near Coloma, and that's where he resided after that. So Gilson moved around quite a bit uh, during those early years in the formation of the early counties of Michigan. So when Gilson settled there, the only inhabitants in the vicinity in the Coloma area were George Becker and his family, and then the Johnsons, who had come into that area a little bit later, and they lived there until 1847. And then in 1849, Stephen R. Gilson and Gilson Osgood a little bit confusing there. They both, one of them has the last name and the other one has Gilson in his first name. And they made an important improvement in that area and they erected a sawmill on Tannery Creek. And then in 1850, Gilson sold out his interest in the mill to a man by the name of Austin Boyer, who in turn sold it to another man who became the sole proprietor of the mill. So nevertheless, the presence of Mr. Osgood, why he was involved with the milling business, he got involved with three or four other men to establish a store. Initially, it was a shanty that they built, and they filled it with a lot of stock, and then they called it, well, this is a store. And so they sold goods at that time, and it wasn't a very extensive store. They didn't have a lot of goods to sell, but over time, it did grow, and it became essentially the first store known in the village of Coloma. But the village wasn't called Coloma at that time. It was just beginning to grow, and they didn't have a name. And the story goes that when Gilson Osgood opened his store, the first day's trade was a pretty heavy one. People needed goods, and it came out, and so they were quite busy. And the announcement had gone forth, and many people had gathered far and near to come obtain goods at the store. 
And money at that time was exceedingly scarce in this backwoods area of Berrien County. And the customers generally brought an assortment of farm produce to exchange for goods that they had in this store with Mr. Osgood. And so fully nine-tenths of the business that he did that day when he opened up was bartering and trading, and he called it dickering. And so after the day had ended, he decided that, you know, now that they've got a store, they need to start calling this location where the store is at by a, a name. And he said, well, why don't we call it Dickerville? And that became the popular opinion recognized by all of the people that came there and people that were living in proximity. So everybody kind of agreed, hey, let's christen the name Dickerville. And so that's how it got its name originally was Dickerville. And it stayed Dickerville as the name of the village until 1855. And that was when Stephen Gilson changed it to the name Coloma. So Gilson Osgood originally named it Dickerville. He's the one that had the store. And then Stephen Gilson, when he had gone away and come back, changed the name to Coloma. And the reason that he suggested the name of Coloma is because that was the name of a town that he came across when he visited California during the gold rush. And so he came back and said, you know, we should just name the village after that prosperous pioneer city out in California. And I suppose everybody thought that was a better sounding name than Dickerville, and so the name got switched over. And so in 1867, Mr. Osgood left Coloma, and he moved to the village of St. Joseph, where he became the landlord of the Perkins House until his death in 1868. So he only lived there about a year. Most of his time before that was in Coloma. Now, as I mentioned before, the first sawmill built in Coloma was built on Tannery Creek by Stephen R. Gilson and Gilson Osgood. And then in 1849, Martin Muser and others built another mill along that same stream, and it was actually a tannery. And so Osgood put steam power into his sawmill in 1850. And a very sad event happened two years later. There was an explosion of the boiler on April 19th of 1852. And this was a huge calamity. The explosion was quite catastrophic and it blew apart the mill. And the result is that it killed two children that were playing nearby. And the two children was Charlotte Osgood, the daughter of Gilson Osgood, and Shumway Muser, the daughter of Martin Muser. So their kids were playing there in the area and this explosion happened. So other people were injured from the mill explosion and the mill itself was badly damaged, but there was no further loss of life other than the two children, which was kind of a sad event in the early days of Coloma in 1852. Now, when Stephen Gilson had gone to California and he had come back and they renamed the town Coloma, he had also built another sawmill on the Pawpaw Creek, and that um, was a steam-powered sawmill. So you can see the milling industry was starting to grow in Coloma. And then another man by the name of Ira Wilkes began the construction of a grist mill on Tannery Creek, and a couple of other investors came along and put in the machinery, and that mill started in 1861. Now, the mill changed ownership many times over the years. It changed ownership in 1866 and 1876. The mill was damaged by a flood. And then in 1877, 
it was uh, the grist mill was replaced with a steam mill and it increased its productivity expanding to three millstones which increased the business to quite a flourishing concern after that and a man by the name of abram smith became the pioneer blacksmith shop that built his shop up in coloma and he was the first blacksmith in the village of Coloma. Now, the Coloma Post Office became established in 1857. The people in the Coloma area and vicinity received their mail prior to that at the Watervalley Village. And so the first postmaster was Dr. H.M. Marvin, and he was ultimately succeeded in 1859 by J.H. Marvin, who would hold that position for two years and retire and turn it over to a man by the name of C.C. Perry. And there's another note about the naming of the village of Coloma. When Stephen Gilson had come back from California and he named it after that village in California, Coloma is actually the Spanish name for a fragrant and beautiful flower that grows on the Pacific Slope in that area of California. And that was how that town out in California got named. So I just wanted to include that information in the story. And so the, the taverns that were built in Coloma, obviously a lot of these new villages, the early establishments are obviously the mills, and then you have your general stores. And then, of course, the post office somewhere comes along the line. And, of course, taverns become a big industry in those areas. And so in 1851, Charles Bostick discontinued the school that he had started in 1849, and he sold the school building to a man by the name of Moses Sargent, who converted it into the first tavern in town. So there had been a small school, and I guess they must have been uh, not enough students or couldn't get a, a teacher. Sometimes those were the cases that happened during uh, the pioneer era, or the kids would end up going over to a neighboring village for their education. And so the school building was sold to Moses Sargent, who turned it into a tavern. And then in later years, Gilson Osgood bought the property from the man in 1858, and he made a lot of improvements to the building, expanded it a little bit, and he converted it into the Osgood house, which became a big rooming house and tavern in that location. And his son Marcus became the new landlord. And then in 1871, Minot Ingraham built the St. Cloud Hotel at the railroad depot, and he remained the proprietor all the way up into 1880 when this article was written. So, of course, the railroad had a big impact on Coloma just as much as it had on Watervalley. And in 1869, pending the completion of the railroad going through the area, there were land speculators that came through, and the selection of the location of the railroad station, where it eventually got built in Coloma, was donated by the land speculators so that the railway station could be built. That was a, a strategy that happened a lot in the era of the railroad coming through, as people would own land that the railroad was coming through, and so they would donate a portion of it to the railroad to build a train station, and that improved their investment with surrounding property, because living near a train station offered supplies and goods, and you could build up a community around it with stores, and other businesses could develop around a train station. This was the hub of not only... Of passenger transportation, but it also provided uh, a resource to ship out goods for farmers. So farmers would come to town and they would, of course, be able to sell their goods and then put it on the train and then so forth. So it became a center of commerce when you had a train station in your village. And it wasn't uncommon to have 
villages even as close as Coloma and Water Valida each have their own train station, which is kind of an interesting dynamic when you look back at that era of the importance of the railroad going through these communities. Now, one of the stories that comes back during the early foundation years of Coloma and Water Valley is the hard winter of 1842 to 1843. And at the time of this writing in 1880, it was still vividly recollected as the season of exceedingly cold weather and deep snows. And there was a lot of hardship and suffering that were experienced by the settlers and also on their livestock and the rigors of that period entailed a lot of loss of life. Traveling about the country was often a lot more difficult of an undertaking than they'd ever experienced before, and the heavy snows frequently made the roads impassable for days. And then the game perished for lack of food, and instances related by dwellers in the water valley of wild turkey coming in the village and feeding tamely upon corn thrown to them the depth of the snow in this country, and its long continuance having deprived them of their usual means of sustenance. So during that big winter, there were wild turkeys coming into Water Valley, and the locals would put out corn and feed for them. Now, there was a man that told a story about how he went out into the woods one day in search of his cows and found no less than seven deer lying upon the snow, cold, dead, and having died of hunger. And so that hard winter was quite a memorable one for them. Coloma would go on to be incorporated as a village in 1893, and eventually it became a city in 1941. According to the 2010 census, Coloma had a population of 1,483 people living there, and perhaps the biggest arts and culture event that happens in Coloma every year is the Glad Peach Festival, which is held every August in the city of Coloma. But Coloma is located in what is known as the Fruit Belt, and it's located in the Lake Michigan Shore American Viticultural Area. And it's known for its rich farmland and a lot of wine country in that area. And so is um, Water Valley and that portion of Berrien County. But that's going to conclude today's journey, looking at some of the history of Coloma in Berrien County, Michigan. I just wanted to share some of that early history because I had just done Water Valley, and then I found some more material on it, and they, there were some interesting stories there. I thought it was kind of a, a fun look at some of the history of the early pioneers and their challenges and struggles that they experienced with the explosion of the mill and the naming of the village where it originally was known as Dickerville. I thought it was kind of an interesting history. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a review or rating on whatever app that you are listening on, and be sure to tell others about the show so that they can tune in and become a fan of Tales of Southwest Michigan's past. And if you are looking for a little adventure on Saturday night, because this episode airs on Friday morning, you should take a venture on down to Union City, Michigan and see if you can get a ticket for the Dead Man's Hollow Tour as part of their October events put on by the Union City Society for Historic Preservation. And it's going to be a lot of fun, and yours truly will be playing one of the parts of the people presenting in this program. So hopefully I'll see you there tomorrow evening. And of course, if you'd like to reach out to me, you can always find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening. 